Welcome to Our Lord's Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit OLCC.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at OLCCOKC. So we are in week 10 in our study of Revelation. Thank you three for sharing. We'll be pulling other people into that as well. Uh, we're looking at Revelation 8. We're looking at the seventh seal and the seven trumpets. And just as we're looking at this, I want to make a couple of comments. The book of Revelation is avoided by many, right? Many of us avoid it. This is the first time I've taught it in a church context. I've taught it in the classroom and done those kinds of things, but this is different. There's a reason it's challenging, but there's also something that we'll discover is the Lord wants us to understand it. 2 Timothy 3 says that all scripture is inspired by God and that all of it is profitable. And it's meant for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness. That includes the book of Revelation. And so it is not an unpractical book. It's not something that we should avoid, but it's something we should dig into. It's the end of the story. It's the end of the New Testament. So I encourage you, if you don't have a good study Bible, get one. There's a couple of study Bibles I would recommend. One is the NIV Study Bible by Zondervan, and they actually have a New American Standard version of it as well. So get a good study Bible. Those notes can be helpful. It's important to get the right one. And then we also, in our resource center out here, have a really good book by a guy named Vern Poitras, and it's on the book of Revelation. Um, Some of you have been reading it. It's very helpful, very clear. And I wouldn't urge you to get a bunch of books on Revelation or look at a ton of things online. All you need is a good study Bible because we're seeing that to understand the book of Revelation, it's going to take you on a journey through the Old Testament. It's filled with biblical scriptural images. So we're seeing in this book, the book of Revelation, that it is first and foremost a revelation of Jesus. It's about him. It's from him. It's about his loving presence in his church and how God, through Jesus, is bringing his kingdom and all of human history to a final consummation according to his plan. It's a book of worship. We're finding that, aren't we? It is all about worship. It's centered on the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb. And everything pours out of that. Those first five chapters we found were critical, they're crucial. Everything flows out of the presence of God and the Lamb. And we find, just like it was for the first century believers, it is for us, a vision of God, a vision of Christ, the Lord over all, is what empowers us to face anything. It empowered the Christians in the first century who were experiencing persecution, and it empowers the 21st century church all over the world. Now, I know it's been a few weeks. We had a good time with Emmanuel Tabernacle, didn't we? Wasn't that wonderful for those of you that were here? It was wonderful. We're talking about how to continue to connect with them in the coming days, maybe even a night of worship 
where we get together for a couple of hours, two or six hours maybe of worship with them. And then we had Easter as well. So trying to remember where we've been. We're in chapter 8 now, but we looked at chapter 6 and we looked at chapter 7. Chapter 7 was kind of an an interlude. And so here we are in chapter 8. Going to read it momentarily here, but it is about the seventh seal opening up and it is about the next seven judgments that come upon the earth, the trumpet judgments. And that will make more sense to you in a few minutes here. I want to say this. All kinds of questions swirl around the book. And we're reminding ourselves each week when we look at Revelation that first and foremost, it is about the original audience. The first century churches received this letter, and it was read aloud, and it was for them. Those seven churches in Asia Minor, it was to help them, to inspire them, to lift up their attention to the, the throne, the, to, to the king, the king Jesus. But it's also meant for future readers of all times in all places, and it's important to realize that. The book is about human history, the first coming of Christ, and the second coming of Christ. And oftentimes we think of this in terms of some kind of chronological timetable, some kind of sequence of events, and that's not the case. We're going to begin to see, especially today, that there's lots of overlap, lots of repetition. Think of it like this. Amanda and me and I were watching an Alfred Hitchcock movie, and he was masterful at taking one scene with a few actors and showing it from different angles. So we were just watching North by Northwest. If you haven't seen it, watch it. And you've got a couple of actors down in a living room area where a key scene is unfolding toward the end of the movie. And Cary Grant is up here. And so Hitchcock, one moment, is showing Cary Grant. And he's showing the perspective down into the living room. And you get one angle. Well, then a few moments later, he switches and shows the same scene from a totally different angle. And then he might even have a camera down on the ground and he's shooting up and showing the same scene. He was masterful at that. Well, the book of Revelation is similar to that. We're seeing some of the same things described from different angles. And so that's going to help us understand some of the overlap, some of the apparent repetition. John wants us to understand. He wants us to understand that Jesus is Lord and that hard times unfold for the church in different eras of history, right? This will make more sense as we look at it really over the next three weeks. So I'm going to read chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. And Lord, we again, we lean on you, we ask for your help. Holy Spirit, you inspired these words and gave them to the church And so we look to you, Spirit of God, Spirit of truth, would you help us in these few moments that we've got together to understand what's trying to be communicated through these precious and powerful words. Amen. So Revelation 8, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a golden censer came and stood at the altar. 
He was given a great quantity of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar that is before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets were ready to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And they were hurled to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many died from the water because it was made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars so that a third of their light was darkened. A third of the day was kept from shining, and likewise the night. Then I looked. I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew in mid-heaven, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. This is the word of the Lord. So what we'd like to do here on Sunday morning, even with a text like this, is walk through it together, right? And so my aim is to help us kind of meditate together on a, te- a text like this, a passage, and walk through it. And friends, I will tell you, I've, I've said it before, but um, this is difficult. So I'm with you. We hear a passage like that, and anyone who doesn't have humility rise up in their heart when you're approached... With a text like this, you need to get on your knees. So I am just, I'm telling you, I'm doing lots of that. Opening my Bible, commentary or two, and getting on my face. And just saying, Lord, would you help me understand this? Because this is the message of the kingdom. There is gospel. There is good news in this. This is the good news. And so, friends, I want us to set aside preconceived ideas about this, and even be willing for the Lord to teach us new things about judgment and to teach us how he visits the earth at different times. And we're going to see that if you are his and you belong to his, belong to him, you are marked, you're sealed, you're protected. As Brad and the team were singing this morning, we are clothed in Christ. But friends, there's heavy stuff in here. If you are resisting God, if you're saying no to the king, then the book of Revelation explains that's not where you want to be. And so there are multiple overtures, multiple chances that God in his great mercy gives to individuals and to nations and to groups of people. But believe it or not, some of them absolutely refuse. And they say, no, 
No, I actually want to be enthroned on my heart. I am Lord of my life. And so the book of Revelation is Jesus in all of his infinite love and mercy reaching out through his church, through his people, saying, repent, turn to God. Give your life to the God of love while you're able. Right? So very sobering, but also good news. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 here. And you see at verse 1, the lamb is opening the seventh seal. We saw him open other seals as he opened that scroll. And this is the seventh. And what we'll see here, if you want to put up that slide, and I don't want to overwhelm us with too much detail here, but the book is filled, the book of Revelation is filled with sevens, isn't it? So we saw how many churches in Asia Minor? Seven. How many letters went to those seven churches? Seven. Well, here we're going to see a series of three. We've already been in these seven seals. And what happens is in the seventh of each one of these series, it opens up into the next series. And we'll find that what happens is they intensify. And so we've looked at the seventh seal, and now there's silence, and we'll see why, and what we'll see over the next couple of weeks is that it opens up into the trumpets, and it opens up into the bowls, all right? So I'm not going to overwhelm us with charts, those kinds of things. You can find some of that stuff in a good study Bible. That Vern Porthrus book will have some helpful things to lay out some of the details like this. I want us to just stick with some of the main and plain of the text. So back to the text here. As the seventh seal is opened... There's silence. How comfortable are we with silence? We've seen in one through four, the chapters one through four and even into five, heaven is perpetually singing and adoring and calling out worship of God the Father and God the Son. And so this is a moment for all of heaven to be silent. Well, why are they silent? It's a dramatic pause before the next scene unfolds here. As we look at the Old Testament, there are other moments of silence, and John knows this. His mind, again, is immersed in Scripture, and so... As he's seeing these various visions, he's also got Old Testament scripture running through his mind. Habakkuk 2.20 says this, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Another prophet, Zechariah in 2.13 says this, Be silent, all people, before the Lord. For he has roused himself to action and is about to move from his holy dwelling. Silence is powerful. We'll see in a few minutes that much of this, the background, is the Exodus story. Some of those plagues that were unleashed on Exodus are now recalled here in this text. And one text from the book of Exodus, chapter 14, is the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. So there's something incredibly powerful about silence in this moment. It's a moment of awe. All of heaven is riveted on that moment. Something is happening. There's awe. There's wonder. 
the fear of the Lord. This text, really over the last couple of weeks, has just taken me into some new places in silence. And so I want to invite you to cultivate some silence in your life. It's difficult to find, isn't it? Some of the mothers here are saying, uh, how clued in are you, Brock, to my life? Here's what I've done. I literally will go into the garage with the garage door closed and get in my car without it running, obviously, and sit in silence. It's the quietest place I can find. And I may just do it after taking Jake to school. I may sit there for 30 seconds. And so I'm asking the Lord, hey, this text says that there's something powerful about silence. It's like the language of heaven. It's the language of the age to come. And so I want to learn to sit in silence. If Jesus is the word, then silence is one of the most proper responses that we can have to him. And it can be pretty overwhelming, pretty daunting, but I want to invite us, our lords, to learn to cultivate silence. To sit before the Lord. And I'm not hearing anything necessarily when I do that, but I'm just telling him, you are the most important person in my life. What you have to say, who you are, I'm just going to sit here in silence and honor you with my silence. So let's cultivate silence, just like this text would encourage us. Verse 2, there's seven angels and they're given seven trumpets. It's interesting, if you look at verse 2, says, I saw what seven angels? What's your text say? The seven angels. And so these would have been a particular group of angels and commentators, beginning with early church fathers, would have said, these are the seven archangels who stand before the Lord. And then we read evidence of this in Luke 1. Who is it that comes and brings the news to Mary? It's Gabriel. Luke 1.19 says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And so apparently this text is telling us that there are seven angels who stand before the Lord, and Gabriel is one of them. They're given seven trumpets here. What in the world is that about? Scripture, the Old Testament, is filled with trumpets. In Numbers 10, for example, just one chapter, trumpets were used among the people of God to call them together, to move the tribes along in their journey, to sound the alarm for war, and to celebrate their sacred feasts. You're more familiar probably with Joshua 6. What did they sound as they marched around the city of Jericho? Trumpets. So when these trumpets are mentioned, it is meaning that something is being signaled. Something significant is about to take place, and it's going to happen seven times. It's signaling the day of the Lord, a day of great power and deliverance for the people of God and a day of discipline and judgment for the nations. Look at verses 3 and 4 here. The angel has a golden censer. So we've got these seven archangels with seven trumpets. This is incredibly visual, isn't it? Again, it was meant to be read like we did this morning, but they read the whole thing together. 22 chapters. Can you imagine that? In one sitting. 
So it's incredibly visual, and it's meant to paint these pictures. So the scene shifts here. Verse 3 and 4, look at it. Another angel comes with a golden censer, which is basically a saucer or a fire pan that's filled with incense. In the Old Testament, a priest would come into the presence of God twice a day to offer on the altar of incense before the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle an offering of incense. And so it's conjuring up those images. Something is happening, not in the earthly temple, but in the heavenly temple. One commentator says this. I think it's beautiful because he ties in the Old Testament with the New Testament. Listen to what he says about this. When incense is added to the hot coals in this moment, a cloud of fragrant smoke rises from the altar as a symbol of divine acceptance. Paul writes to the Ephesians that Christ loved them and gave himself for them as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This scene here suggests that there is something sacrificial about genuine prayer. Both the believer and their prayer enter the presence of God by way of this altar. Look at verse 5 here. The scene goes on to develop further. The angel takes the censer and fills it with fire from the altar and throws it on the earth. Now, it's difficult to remember, but back in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, we found persecuted saints that had been martyred. And do you remember? They prayed something back in verse 6, 9 through 11. They said this, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? And so this is an answer. Again, same scene, same moment, but from a different angle. And so this is the answer to the prayer. I don't know about you, but this is startling. This is the prayers of the saints, ordinary people, Christians, like us, going up, entering the presence of God, and moving God. The prayers of the church, friends, are filled. They're infused with the fire of God's holy presence. So as you pray with the Lord, as you pray with friends, as you pray with family, as you pray as a group, these kinds of images are unreal. The fire of God, the power of God infuses our prayers. When we pray, God moves. And our prayers are filled with the fire of God's love, grace, and holy justice. The peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning that are happening around this signify that God is about to move. And we've encountered this over and over again, haven't we, where it is reminiscent of God on Mount Sinai meeting with Moses and the mountain shook and these similar things happen. The second part of the text here, look at verse 6 through 13. There's the seventh seal and now these seven trumpets. These seven trumpets are covering the same period of judgment that we encountered in chapter 6. The seals, but from a different angle. I mentioned that they grow in intensity and scope. We're looking at four of them today. We'll look at two 
next week, and then we'll look at the last one. Again, challenging to not get drawn into the weeds and details, isn't it? I mean, I find myself wanting to comment here and there, but we're just keeping our eyes on some of the main features. I want to make a couple of comments before we look at these. One is the church is not discussed. Did you notice that? As we read this, did you hear any mention of the church, the people of God? The church is not discussed in these judgments. The church, as we saw in chapter 6, and we'll see it in chapter 9 again, the church is marked with the name of God, marked and sealed with the Holy Spirit, protected from the wrath of God. Important. That is one of the things that is often misread about texts like this is, geez, what is happening? The wrath of God being unleashed on the people of God. That's not the case. We'll find out more about this. The church will come again into focus in chapter 11. And friends, the purpose of these judgments and all the subsequent chapters is to bring people to repentance. You with me on this? This is something that is not very popular. Grow your church by teaching on the judgment of God. <laughs> a long series on the wrath of God. Friends, it's not popular, but it is the word of God. And so rather than avoiding it or candy coating it or trying to put a 21st century spin on it, we look at it and it says what it says. And if we look at it clearly, it rings true. God always loves and shields and protects his people. His wrath is never aimed at his people. But we live among other peoples, don't we? So if we're part of a nation, and friends, our nation is going to experience the judgment of God if we're not already. Does that mean God doesn't like his church and that God brings his wrath again? No, no, no. But we get to walk through because we are a corporate people connected with the rest of our nation. And so it is imperative that we look at texts like this, no matter how unpopular they are. Amen? <laughs> One person says amen. No, I'm kidding. I feel you with me totally in this learning. And friends, reading the book of Revelation calls us into new places of maturity. We'll pray differently. We'll think differently. I'm finding myself over and over again saying, Lord, how does this worship? How does this pray? And I just sense him saying, I'm going to grow you. I'm going to grow you. I'm going to show the church and take you into new areas of maturity if you'll lean into it and rely on me. I'm a God of grace and love and mercy, but I do judge the nations that turn their back on me and that forsake me and that slaughter innocent children through things like abortion. The Lord of heaven does not sit back and let nations like ours slaughter tens of millions of innocent children. And so we need, as the people of God, to have in our minds an understanding as things, if and when they get really tough, what is God up to? I'm shielded, I'm protected, but he's going to bring judgment on our nation. And so 2 Chronicles 7, 14 says that we 
humble ourselves and pray. We share the gospel. The text doesn't say that, but we turn from our wicked ways and we plead with God for mercy on behalf of our nation and other nations. I didn't plan on saying that, but it's part of what the text is addressing. There's moments like ours, right? So I mentioned this, that these trumpet judgments in the backdrop, they parallel what happened in Egypt when Israel was enslaved to this political, tyrannical group. And listen to this. As the plagues preceded the release of the children of Israel, this is one commentator saying this, from their Egyptian masters, so plagues will precede the exodus of the church from hostile political powers. They are the prelude to that great and final exodus in which the church is taken out of the world and enters into the eternal presence of God. So we're going to find here that these judgments echo what was happening in the book of Exodus. The first trumpet. Let's look at them very briefly and then we'll wrap up here. Again, I hope that you're seeing more than anything kind of a, a bigger picture of the book of Revelation. We don't want to get lost in all the interlocking pieces, but we want to have a big picture in mind so we can understand this. Very briefly here, the first trumpet at verse 7, we see hail and fire mixed with blood. This resembles the seventh plague in Exodus 9, doesn't it? Some of you are saying, oh yeah, that's... And we notice, why in the world would it say it destroyed a third of the land? Well, in the ancient mind, that is saying it's not complete. It's not total. It's not a complete annihilation. That's coming later. The bold judgments will speak about everything being destroyed. Here, it's partial. Why? So that people are alerted, brought to their senses, and have time to repent. And again, this is not, in my opinion, this speaks of multiple fulfillments here. We'll see this in the following verses 8 through 9. Friends, this is what Jesus prophesied in Luke 9. Jesus said in Luke 9, there will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth, distress among nations, confused by the roaring of the sea, the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Jesus spoke about things like this often, and here we are in the book of Revelation, seeing it spoken about again. We've got to be informed, not fearful, but informed, equipped, and prepared. Verses 8 through 9 here, something like a great mountain burning with fire is thrown into the sea. I want to make a comment here. We're about done. If you'll put that image up that has the three concentric circles. Again, the book of Revelation is a wonderful place to learn about biblical prophecy. If you can see there in that first circle, the smaller one there, number one, each of these prophecies had a particular first century application and fulfillment. All of these symbols would have meant something to those first century folks. We'll see later on that much of it was dealing with the crumbling of the Roman Empire. So it made sense to them. You see in the next circle, what's it say there? 
There are other historical fulfillments. And thirdly, there's a final ultimate fulfillment. Now listen to me here. Perfect example of this is the Antichrist and the Antichrist system that's established. Think of that. First century audience, there was an Antichrist figure. Most likely it was Domitian, the emperor, requiring that all the Christians and everyone worship him. He had a system set up through the Roman Empire. And so John was saying to those first century readers, that's an Antichrist. That's an Antichrist system. You with me on that? When else can you think in human history have we seen an antichrist figure who established a system that looked like antichrist? Yes, I was waiting for someone to say that, Hitler. Hitler emerged with power and had some of those same characteristics that Domitian did, persecuted the people of God, raised up a structure. And so we'll see, and we'll get more into this later, but I think this is a really key thing to understand with reading the book of Revelation. There will ultimately be the Antichrist and the Antichrist system. And John is signaling that. But we talked about dropping a pebble in a pond with that ripple effect. That's how prophecy works. There's one initial moment, but then it's amplified and telescopes through history and is finally fulfilled. I find that interesting. And so that's what's happening here. I'm going to end with this, but an example, verses 8 through 9. The second angel blows his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships destroyed. So I'm going to give you another example. This actually had a first century fulfillment for the people of God. In 79 AD, there was a massive volcanic eruption at Vesuvius in Italy, destroyed the city of Pompeii. This was about 10 or 15 years before John wrote the book of Revelation. And so his vision is incorporating that natural disaster into his vision. Now, does that mean that is the only fulfillment? No. But it is signaling that in the end, there will be an ultimate fulfillment of this. Skip down to verse 13. This will set us up here. We'll end with prayer. Again, you can go back and look at this, and you can take texts like this and look at these trump, trumpet announcements of judgment, and you can compare and contrast them with Exodus 9 and following and see all kinds of correlations here. But look at verse 13. I'm going to read this again. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew in midheaven. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. As one commentator says, this is not the United States. We see an eagle and we think immediately, is this the United States in prophecy? No. We've already mentioned where the United States is in biblical prophecy and that is going to be experiencing the discipline of the Lord unless the United States experiences great revival, falls on its face and repents and turns to God. 
That's where the United States is in biblical prophecy, but this is not it. So this sets us up for next week. We'll be looking at chapter 9. We'll look at the next few trumpets. But I do. I hope that you're learning a little bit. You're seeing that the book of Revelation is deep and mysterious and filled with symbols and interesting and fascinating. But as much as anything, it should engender worship and prayer and confidence like it did for the first century believers. This is me. If we'll let this vision get in our spiritual bloodstream, we will be filled with power and resolve and able to face and endure anything. Let's stand. I'm going to ask the ministry team to come up and worship team, I think, is making their way up. So if you're on the ministry team, your schedule for today, why don't you come up here? On the note of ministry team, we're going to be exploring ways to engage more people. So if you're interested in joining the ministry team, you can talk with these folks right here, Alan, Melissa, King, and we'll be doing ongoing training. When's the next training for a ministry team? Summer? Okay. Okay. I was saying this afternoon at your house. No, I'm joking. I'm kidding. So we are, we're always asking the Lord, especially after COVID, how do we engage and mobilize more people? How do we get more people involved in this space that we create up here, believing for kingdom breakthrough? So Lord, we thank you for time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word that you have spoken and you still speak. And so we ask, even this week, that you would fill us with new love and courage and boldness and an appetite to immerse ourselves in the word of God. We pray that in the mighty name of Jesus.